0: Welcome to a special episode of Talking Feds Now, a roundtable in partnership with the LA Times Studios. I'm Harry Litman. In this episode, we'll be talking with some very prominent sisters-in-law, all of them who served as clerks with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Today is the kind of day when you wake up and your first thought is, did I have a terrible dream or did that really happen? Well, it really happened, a day many on the left have been dreading and probably many in the president's flailing campaign had secretly hoped for. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, icon, professor, country-changing advocate, luminary for 40 years on the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court, an improbable hipster hero, died yesterday from pancreatic cancer. The news played immediately as a political hurricane with possible game-changing impact on the presidential election. But we're not here today to engage in any of the political chattering. Our goal is rather to focus on the trailblazer, counselor, visionary, friend, spouse, and mother that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in an 87-year life that saw huge changes in the world several of which she herself helped propel. And to do that, we have three of the people who had the good fortune to serve as her clerks and probably during their years to spend more time with her in chambers than anyone else save her family. They are Ginger Anders, a clerk in 2004, 2005, and now a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Munger, Tolles & Olson. Ginger is a former assistant to the U.S. Solicitor General and a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel. And she has argued 18 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Ginger, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you.
0: Jillian Metzger, clerk in 1997 and 98, and now the Harlan Fisk Stone Professor of Constitutional Law at the Columbia Law School. Jillian is a co-editor of Gelhorn and Bise's Administrative Law, a seminal administrative law casebook, and the healthcare case, the Supreme Court's decision and its implications. Jillian, welcome. Thank you. And finally, Amanda Tyler, a Ginsburg clerk in 1999-2000, and now the Shannon Cecil, Turner, professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. She's the author of Habeas Corpus in Wartime, From the Tower of London to Guantanamo Bay, and a co-editor of Hardin Wexler's The Federal Courts and the Federal System, the book that is as close as anything to a Bible for Supreme Court practice. Amanda, thanks so much for joining Talking Feds.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So, you know, very hard, I know, to try to capture a person in 40 minutes or so, but let's try to do our best. I wanted to start with something that I think you all know very well, but the public not so much. And that was Justice Ginsburg's personal manner. In my few meetings with her, she came across as extremely diffident, soft-spoken, maybe shy, maybe painfully shy. Others have remarked on the silences that you had to get used to. So first, you know, do you know what I mean? And second, was it like that for you throughout the year as you came to know each other better?
3: I'd have to say I don't think she was shy. She was very deliberate. And so every word, not just written but spoken, was pretty carefully chosen. And so there was sometimes a slowness in that sense or some gaps as she thought about what she wanted to say but what you came to realize was that during those periods of gaps she was fully thinking about what she wanted to to say and it was it was going to be it wasn't at all that a a lull it was the mind was worrying behind the silence
1: yeah she was such a fantastic editor of opinions and such a careful and persistent editor and i always felt like those pauses were pauses in which she was doing the same thing to her spoken word that she would be doing uh, to to her writing. You know, she'd be going over it and taking out the unnecessary words and just making sure that that she had exactly the right word. So you know the joke was that you had to count to five. Uh, what you thought she was done, you'd count to five, and then you'd speak. but i it was that editing process, I think I think
2: everything that's just been said is spot on. The only thing that I would add is that if you could get her to talk about opera, she would become incredibly animated. She was she loved opera and she would just come alive in talking about her favorite operas. It was such a wonderful thing to see.
0: That's great. But but following up on what Ginger said, her as this um punctilious and very, very precise editor, I know at least early in her career when I had a sense of it, her relationship with clerks was quite paper driven they would slip drafts under her door her closed door and they would come back in uh in, in a especially early in the term a very edited fashion is that the way that it worked when you were clerking for her
1: it was you you would you would complete a draft and you'd leave it in this box um, by by her door and then she'd uh, she'd edit it uh, usually in pencil uh, she would she would yeah. she had this perfect cursive and so it would come back you know with things lightly crossed out and 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 the, and the cursive written over it but then she'd sit down with you um and and she'd explain to you almost word by word why she had changed each thing and it would be you know everything from you know switching passive voice to active voice to you know some some major legal point in the opinion but you know, she would go over it in great detail.
3: I mean, I, I don't know if Amanda and Ginger had this experience, but after you clerk for Justice Ginsburg, I think you kind of carry a little RBG on your shoulder when you're <laughs> writing. Software, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and you'll write a yes. clause and you'll look at it and think, well, that's an unnecessary word. That one could go, <laughs> really, we need some additional commas here to set off that clause. And then you, and it, it you just, it sort of, you see the influence that she has had uh, over time. And
2: you, you also, picking up on that, absolutely, she lives on in your ear, on your shoulder, wherever <laughs> it is, whispering, telling you, no, 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 be better. You can do better. Um, but y- you also look for great first lines to mm-hmm. grab your reader. You look for places where you can use really great words like path marking, which was path one of my favorites. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> From, separated by five years, but same word, I see.
2: Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yep, that was yep. a favorite. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Every time I use it, I just I think of her. I smile a little bit because mm. I think of her. I try to put it into briefs if I can.
0: <laughs> did you uh, when you met with her and she was explaining that was it always one on one? Were there one on four meetings? And I guess relatedly, what was her process in advance? And how did it employ clerks, if at all, for working through especially tough cases and knowing just where she wanted to be?
3: No, I think this may have changed a little bit over time. So I'm, I'm particularly, I think I was the oldest clerk. When I was there, we did our individual bench memos and then worked with her on a draft. But we didn't have as much collaboration among the clerks with everybody reading the bench memos or reading the opinions before you submitted them, which I think is something that developed over time. And so the process was really more of a clerk for a case, although sometimes she might bring in another clerk on a particular case or change it over um, over
0: the course. You mean just for a discussion or a devil's advocate position or whatever?
3: My memory is of mainly working off of paper. So you, know, you wrote a memo, bench memo on the case, and then you'd engage with her over that, or you'd write be working on a draft opinion and you'd engage over that, or the opinion came from another chambers and you read it through and you had comments on that. Um, I don't remember as many kind of jam sessions just thinking through the ideas. That's that's not so much my memory. I think
2: I had a very similar experience to Jillian our, our year, a few years after Jillian's. It was usually one clerk to a case, although occasionally she would bring in another clerk. And we did also talk primarily based on drafts. I do remember fondly though, one of my very favorite memories in uh, on, in this context of my clerkship happened in a case in which I had written a very lengthy bench memo. I really thought the answer should be X and she thought the answer should be Y. And she read my memo on a weekend. So she called me on the phone to talk about it. And we talked for a good two hours about it. Wow it took me that long. And so I'm a little slow to realize that what she really wanted was for me to say, oh, I think actually you're right, Justice, but I refused. I refused to back down. And I kept, you know, engaging with her in part because it was so fun, so much fun just to intellectually spar with her in obviously a super respectful way, but in a really deep dive kind of way. And I didn't want the phone call to end until eventually I was like, you know, I'm getting a little tired and I think she's <laughs> tired. And so I finally, I said, hey, you know, boss, you're the justice. So <laughs> if that's what you want, that's what I'll write.
1: <laughs> Yeah. I think my sense of her was that she, you know, she had very strong instincts about what she wanted to do with every case. So Benjamin could help her by boiling down the issues and maybe confirming what she already thought or raising questions for her. But You know, she was really someone who already came to it with a with a definite view, um, and and she would use the clerks to help her sort of work through things. But um, you know, we didn't have those jam sessions. Maybe in part because you know she often knew what she thought.
0: You know, following up on Amanda's point, she is being you know lionized as a great liberal, and of course, she did vote with the the four in most big cases and maybe this is a reflection of the liberty or the, you know, the greater latitude one has as a Supreme Court justice. When I clerked, uh, she was on the D.C. Circuit, and she actually had the reputation, I clerked for MICVA, so one of, you know, the more liberal judges. She had a reputation of being much more centrist is one way to put it, but it was really sort of punctilious or proceduralist. So, you know, she would work through things carefully, like a civ pro- teacher might. And sometimes it would cause her to be, you know, on the side of, uh, of a Bork opinion or a Scalia opinion. And I think the stoling or just the recognition of her as a as a kind of liberal giant on the court and the focus on some of her dissents doesn't fully capture the whole picture of someone dedicated to the law and where the law takes you in very precise steps.
3: I mean, I think that's, I think that's right. I, among the clerks, you'll realize that if there was a kind of obscure civil procedure case, she would go for that one. She yeah, and, and it yeah. was really fun to work on those because those cases really had that aspect. That remains something that she really cared a lot about. And I think she really um, sort of developed a jurisprudence there. I do think that if you look at her jurisprudence over time, I don't think it ever lost It's care. I think when I think of her, her writing of opinions, it always had that same degree of care. There is a voice that is consistent throughout. I do think that over time, as the court moved more to the right, she was more assertive in some ways about insisting that the court recognize that it was ignoring what equality and justice required, and that it was doing so also by just not paying attention to the world. Like that, you'd get these broad statements that that just didn't connect to the lived reality. And that was what I think she started to to quite powerfully articulate in this sense. And that's I think why they were so powerful and and took on the meaning that they have. Yeah, if I could pick up on what Jillian
2: just said, you know, as I think back about her jurisprudence what stands out is that this is someone who very powerfully understood that the law impacts the everyday lives of Americans. And she often understood very acutely how, and there are so many examples I could give. Uh, The Ledbetter case where she says to the Mm -hmm. majority, you just don't understand how pay discrimination works for the working class. How is this woman supposed to have found out that she was being systematically paid less than her male peers for so long? In Hobby Lobby, when she writes about how the majority, the all-male majority doesn't understand that working-class women are not going to be able to afford contraception if you make it easier for employers to opt out of the contraceptive mandate. So she had a real appreciation for how things affected people on the ground. I'm reminded of a conversation that she and I had at UC Berkeley last fall, in which we were talking about gosert and Cleary. This old case decided, uh, I think in 1948, uh, about a Michigan law that banned women from bartending and waiting tables at night under most circumstances. And as she talked with me about the case, she said, you know, the problem is, of course, at night is when you get the best tips. <laughs> so she really, you know, she really understood, I love that example because it, it it's that's right, and only somebody from a working class background would know that. <laughs> and and so she really had this rich appreciation that although they, we were, you know, debating high level law, it had very serious ramifications on the ground. And so when you read her opinions, you read a voice for the lived experiences of a very broad spectrum of our society.
1: You know, I think when we were all clerking, she was a relatively junior member of the court and of the liberal wing, um, and she always respected Justice Stevens so much. Uh, he was the you know, sort of the most senior member of, of, of the liberal side at that time, and, and there was a real sense in which he was a leader. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we got to see occur in the past, you know, 10 years or so after Justice Stevens retired was that she really took on that mantle, right, and became the leader of the of the liberals and, you know, started writing those big dissents, right, and I think really felt it very deeply that, that you know, she had responsibility for voicing a, you know, something unified on behalf of, of the four of them.
0: I had the sense, it took me by surprise at the time, of fantastic admiration for Justice O'Connor and a certain loneliness when O'Connor stepped down, and she, you know, felt herself a lone uh, woman's voice. Was what did, did Ginger? Did you clerk after O'Connor left? But the other two, when she was there, so I was
1: I clerked during Justice O'Connor's last year. Nice. So actually, she announced her retirement. I think within our the last weeks of our clerkship, and it was really it was really emotional in chambers. The, Justice Ginsburg was very very moved by it, and you could. It it, I think took her by surprise and it took all of us by surprise and and she seemed to feel it really, really deeply.
2: She told me that when O'Connor left and she and she said this publicly when uh, she was the only woman on the court that that was really hard. She was she really didn't like that. And I think probably because she felt like many of us observed and felt too, like we were going backward. So she was ecstatic with the appointments of Justice
3: Sotomayor and Justice Kagan. I mean, I think she also, there were some cases where if you think about um, the um, Redding case of the 13-year-old girl who was being strip searched, and she later said that, that her male colleagues just didn't understand that it was different for a 13-year-old girl. To have to take be strip searched at that age than it was for a thirteen-year-old boy. They were sort of a little bit question of well, you know. I remember when I was young in in the locker room, and she intervened very, you know, yeah. forcefully, and I uh, think she thought they just didn't get it.
0: I heard her once talk about, you know, in very straightforward terms about, you know, her her equality jurisprudence was carefully mapped and the like. But she just said, I, you know, I didn't understand why. He should have one job while she has two. It was it was very basic about about couples' lives. I want to ask you about that because there's a lot of comparisons now being drawn with Justice Marshall, for whom I clerked, about her earlier life as a really you know trailblazing advocate. We would occasionally, on very very lucky days, get regaled by uh, Justice Marshall with some account of that. Was was that a part of her life anymore? And did it ever sort of come out when you know the feet were up, or was late at uh, late in the afternoon in the in the court? Were you aware of her previous life as an advocate?
3: Oh, definitely aware. Um, I mean, this is I mean, why did she, I... did
0: she discuss? I should say, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, you know, my, I I think it, it came up w- once or twice. You were my memory is that, that you know she's always asked to give speeches, and many of those speeches. You know, when you're a justice, there's a limited number of topics that you can safely talk about, um, right. and that was one of the topics that she had uh, as a, a that she could, of course, talk about. And so, um, in that context, and in talking about speeches and stuff like that, it would it would sometimes come up. Uh, another one in that vein that I remember working on my first assignment on, as a clerk was a speech about the wives of the justices. Another safe topic for a justice to talk about.
0: Right.
1: Yeah, it's funny because, you know, in recent years, she's become such a, such a pop culture icon. Uh, but she, for that, for, for her advocacy for women's rights, and, and of course, we were all aware of it. That's why we wanted to clerk for her. And, you know, we kind of worshipped her for those reasons. But she never yep. talked about it in chambers, you know, and she, she was such a quiet and diligent person. It it really just felt like she had, you know, she had had these tremendous achievements, but, you know, she was here every day to do the work that was on her desk, and, you know, she was going to persist at doing that work and, you know, making every single opinion just perfect. And I don't know, it's one of the things I admire her most for, I think, uh, you know, looking back, just that sense of, you know, you show up every day, you do your best. And, you know, it wasn't about sort of, you know, telling war stories or resting on her previous accomplishments.
0: Let's talk about this notorious RBG stuff. I I, I uh, can claim a very small role in the phenomenon, because I'm uh, quite good friends with the filmmaker, Julie Cohen, and I made the first overture to uh, Justice Ginsburg to maybe speak with her and, and vouch for Julie, which, to my surprise, she um, accepted. But, you know, it must have both perplexed and delighted her. What what was your sense of her reaction to becoming, you know, this, this uh, Pop culture icon for the for the hip hop class for what you know or, or Gen Z or whatever whatever it was a kind of an improbable development.
3: I think she was thrilled. Um, I got to say, I mean, I, I think she I think she I think she thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it. I remember she came to Columbia for a talk on in 2018, and she had her notorious RBG bag that she was carrying <laughs> around. Um, uh, I, I do have to confess that if I were going to make predictions from, you know, in my ah. culture, what was going to happen to the, this was not one of them. <laughs> really, it was not top of my list.
2: Yeah. She, you know, she joked about how everyone wants to take their picture with me and she didn't understand it. <laughs> this but, was when she
0: was at Berkeley about a year ago visiting you, is it? Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think she even, they have a clip of her saying that in the documentary. But, uh, you know, what I loved about it, And we see the outpouring, the just overwhelming outpouring of grief all over this country is that everyone got to learn about her life, she became the national treasure that we all knew she was, but not everyone else knew, and to have children's books about her life and work inspiring the next generation educating the next generation of how she worked so tire tirelessly excuse me to make ours a better and more just and more equal society this is
3: awesome but it's also just awesome that little kids are looking up as their icon to a woman who because she had a brain and a commitment and made a difference in the world I mean that's a That's a great development on so many fronts. And I think that she did, you know, she really enjoyed that little girls sort of saw her on the bench as being perfectly normal, right? Um, And not necessarily, you know, something so original, which means that she, you know, she had achieved so so much just in the course of her life, because that was because of the work that, you know, she had started.
0: My 15-year-old daughter, Lila, was the one who brought me the news. And she's been inconsolable for the, for, you know, 24 hours. I don't think she could name another uh, justice, maybe Justice Kagan, but, but this, this was, this has, you know, really um, uh, made her completely upset. We're hearing, reading about some accounts of times where Justice Ginsburg took a real interest in the personal lives of some of the uh, clerks acted as counselor and the like. I'm just wondering if that was, you know, I think there are some justices or judges who want, you know, like their clerks fine, but want nothing to do with them. Maybe others who are very much a Chambers family. Would the justice kind of look to take on that role with everyone? Would she just be available if you came to her and did you? You know, what was your experience of her as sort of personal counselor?
3: I mean, my first of all, I think she was actually a very good mentor in terms of she supported her clerks. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a number of her clerks went on the academic market and she backed them. I don't think that she I don't think it was really in her personality to reach out and give counsel unless you asked for it or Mm -hmm. reach out and give support unless you asked for it. But she would be there if you were on the market or needed a letter or, or, or that kind of support. Um, she took a real interest, I, I think, in our in our families. I mean, I had the yeah. kind of slightly mind-blowing experience when I went down to D.C. when with my son, who was around eight or nine at the time, and we came by the court and I introduced him to her. And she went into grandma mode and literally shepherded my son around the court and pointed out where she sat on the court and where this was. And I mean, part of that is I think she really, she had a bubble, she really did. But I think it was also that she saw, like she was opening the law, like she was making this world available to him, but it was it was so interesting because you know the, when I when I go to the court, you know it's like very serious and it's the court and you know it's great to see the justice and that's that would always be warm, but you know uh, and here she was in grandma mode. It was just it was for me it was a kind of prising current events, but I I think that's not unusual. No, that's that. I mean, I think we all had a very
2: similar experience in that regard. She was an amazing mentor. I remember uh, when I went on the academic job market and I didn't get so many interviews initially, I mentioned that to her and she said, send me a list of names and phone numbers and I'll call. And she started making calls for me. I I, I can't even begin to tell you how, how much of a difference that made and how grateful I am. She also had, when she knew that you were going through a hard time, if there was a way that she could find out, you know, she would check in and she would look out for you. I was very close with Linda and Kathy, the two assistants who worked with her. And they knew, for example, that um, many years ago, I, my family, we were going through a really, really difficult time. And the justice went out of her way to reach out, to offer kindness and support, and also incredible wisdom and, and just wise advice about how we would get through it. We would look back on, on the, the experience and actually find very powerful silver linings. And I can tell you that it was a gesture I talked to her as recently as this summer about because I carry it with me every day.
1: Yeah, And she, you know, I think her marriage was so important to her and such a source of joy for her that she was very, very interested in her clerk's marriages and weddings. And, you know, of course, when you're clerking, that's kind of a time of your life where you might be, you know, getting married or just married. And, you know, so I have one of those stories, too, which was that um, we decided, to you know, get married over President's Day weekend. You know, we didn't want a wedding. You know, we we're just going up to the New York City uh, courthouse, and you know, so she got wind of it, and she wasn't having it. You know, so she she threw us a party. She threw a party for for all the law clerks, and you know, gave us gave us advice. Um, and I'll never forget what she said, which was, you know, "My marriage is the most important thing in my life, and so so you should you should treat it that way." And it's such a remarkable thing for someone like her to say, you know, somebody with such tremendous achievements, you know, who, who as, as an advocate, as a Supreme Court justice, right, just, it, just for her to say that just meant so much and, and really did show that, you know, it's, it, that's always the most important thing, you know, your family, um, no matter what else you're doing in the world. Um, and, you know, it just spoke so much to how her partnership with, with Marty was, um, and it's just an example for all of us, I think. It was, it was so joyful right, and, and so much of a source of strength her
2: a very very special part of being her law clerk when marty was alive was watching their great love affair it really was so special
0: i was just going to mention this fantastic axiom that i think dovetails with the things you're saying you know when what would be her main advice about marriage would it be make sure it stays equal from the start or make sure there's mutual respect no it's a i guess i guess this actually came from marty's mom but the great piece of advice was, in a marriage, it's good to be a little deaf. <laughs> you know, that's, that, that, that's exactly kind of counter to type of what you would think. And yet it's so, you know, down down to earth and, and sort of big-souled or big-hearted.
3: It's one thing I was going to say. I do have these memories of, you know, Marty would come sometimes in the evening to bring her home. And um, just when he would come into chambers and this... Just a smile would sort of etch itself across her face. She couldn't, as if she couldn't control it. She was just, just a big smile would burst out um, when she saw him, which was always nice. I think the other thing that, uh, you know, we talk about their partnership and it was so important, but I, you know, we shouldn't lose track of how unusual for that era mm-hmm. of, of, a, of, a, of a marriage that kind of relationship was. I mean, she credits Marty. Um, so much for, for supporting her and for the success that she had. That's also because it, it really was unusual at the time for a husband to um, not just you know, support his wife, but to really you know take on the cooking and childcare and various things that, that allowed her to have the career that she did.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a matter of public record. Ron Klain, a real authority, has said, that it was it was Marty's push over the top after the initial mm-hmm. she'd kind of been pushed down a little on the li- on the list that that literally made her become Clinton's first choice.
2: Yeah, he was her biggest fan. What a special thing to say. And Jillian's right. In their generation, this was not the norm. But she loved to talk about how child rearing was really important to him. He wanted to spend time with his kids and so he wanted to share that responsibility he also believed i mean she said this when i interviewed her last fall i said do you have any advice for my students and she said choose a partner who believes your work is as important as theirs and that's what she did and thank god we're all the better for it
0: you know i read uh i hadn't seen this uh, associated with her before but the a quote that maybe you have heard Fight for the things you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. And again, I did a sort of double take thinking about that and Justice Ginsburg, because you know, there's a there's sort of a negative injunction side to that. You know, don't be a jerk. Uh, maybe even a good justice should be a little deaf. But the the other side of it, uh, kind of form coalitions, work the room. I really think. Uh, of her not doing that is she she led by example or maybe she chose um, the the arguments and that that had integrity and and weren't unnecessarily vicious, but I didn't have the impression of her as kind of of working things in that way. Is is that fair?
3: I'm thinking of Justice Brennan and Justice Ginsburg right, together because you're you're, yes. you're making me think of I can count to five, exactly. and I think she really cared about the architecture of the argument, and again this kind of deliberateness with which it was written. And that said, I think you might be giving a slightly partial picture. Um, mm-hmm. She said, you know. She signed on to a lot of opinions without a dissent. And um, you know that's, that's not to say that you know, her druthers might not be occasionally, that some sentence or another might not be there. But I think that is the collegiality part. Um, I think that we know her now so much for her voice in dissents. And that's a different art than writing a majority. So I think that also affects you know, our sense of her tone. I do think that she, and if you look at her advocacy strategy, she had a, an understanding and I, you know, I think she might in many ways be right, that if you try to go for too much all at once, you may not get what you want to get. So, you know, she, she was, I think, and I think this was, you know, again, when you hear, see the forcefulness of the defense sense over time, it may be that in reacting to the conservative court and in assuming the, the mantle of the leaders of the liberal bloc, she became more, uh direct but i think she had a kind of in, more incrementalist strategy earlier on that was part of her critique of roe mm-hmm. as well and so i think but i think that was really not a, a sign that she didn't have the commitments as much it was a strategic question um and uh you know i think that she had more um maybe a little bit more play in the joints and is always evident if you simply look at her dissents yeah i think everything
2: jillian said is is spot on more generally, though I, I think she liked to engage with the other side. She gave uh, the one of the eulogies at justice Scalia's services, in which she said at his memorial in which she said that his dissent in VMI helped make her majority opinion stronger mm-hmm. I, I did not clerk for her that year, but I suspect she was trying right up until the end to get him to join too. <laughs> um, although it was probably at some point apparent it was a lost cause. But I think I, when I hear that quote, what it makes me think of is that she was very savvy, but also more generally it sort of marries with the, uh, the, the quote she loved to talk about that her mother told her don't don't waste your energy being angry or on other emotions that are not constructive right so use your time and your energy on this earth to do something constructive and that means engaging with the other side talking respectfully trying to win them over to your point of view and always having your sort of eyes on the prize as it were understanding the big picture of the work that you're doing
0: I think constructive is an exceptionally good word for her now that I think about it. We've covered a lot of ground and we still have just a few minutes. I just wanted to ask each of you to tell us some detail or anecdote that you you think of when you look back on your clerkship. It could be trivial or it could be grand, but something that... You really like the little voice on on your shoulder that you, you know, kind of keep with you and will keep with you in thinking about the justice.
3: Well, so since I gave the little justice on my shoulder before, there's one part of her jurisprudence that I don't think gets enough attention and doesn't uh, it's not what she's known for. And that's her approach to Congress. And her approach to Mm -hmm. the role of the court in relation to Congress. And she, I think, was actually incredibly powerful there. I think it connected to her advocacy because she recognized the importance of having democratic institutions lead the way to really implementing justice. And people talk about the Ledbetter dissent, where she calls on Congress to remedy. But it was in so many other areas, which they did, exactly. Um, But it was in so many other areas where she just had an understanding of the the importance of the court maybe is you know doing a floor but not a ceiling on what moves congress could make and you know she it doesn't it's not one of the opinions of hers that I think gets a lot of uh, recognition being pulled out but her opinion in NFIB versus Sibelius is so spot on on every bit. So in NFIB versus Sabilis, one of the issues was whether or not Congress could force you to buy something. And the analogy was, could fo- Congress force you to buy or eat broccoli? And, you know, it's fine. It's a nice little logical parallel, but it's not reality. Nobody ever is going to try and force you to, to buy <laughs> and eat broccoli. You know why? Because it's broccoli. <laughs> you know why people think you need to you know, buy and have health care? Because it's health care. Because you're spreading costs. Because we all know you're always going to need health And she just, you know, she. Said it, and she said it so plainly, and it had that same conception of reality of how it, how things work. So I I really treasure that particular opinion. I'll pick up there if it's all right, and and just
2: say that was a pervasive theme about her jurisprudence, and I I love that Jillian brought attention to it. Uh, for those of us who teach and write about federal courts and administrative law, that's really important. Um, there's another opinion that she wrote for a majority called Bank Markazi versus Peterson in which it's animated by the very same principles. It's basically that the court needs to be mindful of where its lane is and Congress gets its lane. And without going into the details of the case, basically there she says with a strong majority that if Congress has complete control over an area of the law statute in that case, statutory law in that case, like as in Ledbetter, then it's not for the court to second guess what Congress does unless there's some meta-constitutional principle in play. Yes, then we we have something to say. But the relevant law in that case was all within the purview of Congress's power. So the court needed to stay in its lane. More generally, I think as I've looked back on her legacy and, and I've been reviewing a lot of things from her from her life and work, I keep coming back to a couple of things, one from my clerkship and one from just, looking back on her life, at her confirmation proceedings, she she talked about learned hand, and she talked about the role of the courts. And even with respect to the Constitution there, she said, you can't look to the courts as the sole guardians of the Constitution. Everyone has to protect the Constitution, the Congress, the President, and the people. And she really believed that. And the other thing that marries with this, uh, that I would say in reflecting on my clerkship is I keep coming back to the artwork that she had in Chambers, which was born out of her faith, but also very much expressed her calling as a lawyer. she had up justice, justice shalt thou pursue, and I think now she's left that work to all of us, and we have to carry it on
1: yeah that's that's absolutely right. I mean, I think for me, one thing. This is related to everything that uh, Jillian and Amanda said. One thing that really stands out for me in the clerkship was her respect for public service and 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 more specifically her respect for for DOJ and, and for the executive branch. And there was this sense that, you know, when the United States, you know, came in and said something, she was very conscious of the court's you know relative expertise, relative role Um but at the same time she paired that with the same sort of you know exacting standards that she brought to everything else that she was going to hold the government to its aspirations and its ideals and so you know the same thing that she did as a civil rights lawyer you know helping america you know live up to equal justice under law um that 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 phrase applies to, to all of us um you know she she wanted to do the same thing she expected the united states and, and the government to to you know, uphold its highest aspirations as well, and so it made her it made her a great justice in those cases where um, you know where the question was: it's the government living up to what it should be living up to?
0: Well, all right. To pick up on Amanda and from from Deuteronomy, uh, let me just say may her memory before a blessing. Thank you very much to sisters-in-law, Ginger, Jillian, and Amanda, especially for joining us so shortly after the difficult news of Justice Ginsburg's death. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds related content. You can check us out on the web, talkingfeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters, as well as ad free versions of our regular episodes. Submit your questions too. Questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Rebecca Patton. Our editor is Justin Wright. David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Matt McArdle. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.